The Inksa Horizons podcast. Conversations at the intersection of science, society, and public policy. Welcome to the Inksa Horizons podcast. I'm Naomi Simon-Kumar. It's probably safe to say that for most people, government policies don't mean much until they affect us where we live. And the vast majority of us now live in cities. Cities are often where abstract decisions by politicians and policymakers hit the ground and become reality. Not only do municipal governments often have to shoulder the responsibility of turning national policy decisions into workable, real-life practices, many cities now have international profiles and are influencing and implementing international agreements in their own right. Whether it's the old stalwarts of Paris, New York and London, the new global megacities like Lagos, Dhaka and Mexico City, or small local councils, cities and other municipalities are the front line of our struggle to solve our common environmental, technological and social challenges. Do municipal governments have systems in place to incorporate evidence into their decision-making processes? Are they suitably resourced? And just how do cities integrate vertically into the science advice mechanisms of their countries, regions and the world? To provide a global perspective on the role that science advice plays in municipal and urban policymaking, ANCSA convened a global panel featuring Professor Edgar Peters, the Director of the African Centre for Cities, Miss Alice Charles, Project Lead, Cities, Infrastructure and Urban Services Platform of the World Economic Forum, Mr John Morrow, the City Manager for the City of Port Townsend in Washington State, and Professor Marie-Christine Therian, Director of City ID Living Lab. Professor Anna Davies from the Trinity College Dublin Centre for Future Cities is leading the discussion. This panel was recorded at the INCSA 2021 Biennial Global Conference in Montreal. We hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Welcome everyone to this panel as part of the INCSA Building Back Wiser 2021 conference. The overarching theme for the conference today is foresight and resilience and focused on the question, how can science advice help to ensure preparedness, not just for crises, but for all the societal transitions that sustainable development demands? The best available knowledge in all its forms, research and development will have to be employed in just and innovative ways. And following the pandemic, the recovery of societies and cities must go hand in hand with collective action to stabilise the climate crisis and make real progress in relation to the sustainable development goals. As recognised in the viewpoints prepared in advance for this conference, matters of scale and context are incredibly important in thinking about how to ensure just transitions to more sustainable and resilient futures in cities and beyond. And in this panel, we're focusing on the scale of cities and our panellists bring a wealth of expertise from a range of different contexts to reflect on how cities can be the site of solutions to matters of resilience and sustainability. It's well known that urban areas are home to over half the world's population, that long-standing inequalities within them have been deepened by the pandemic. Although urbanisation has been accompanied by lower poverty, job creation and growth, distribution of such urban gains has been uneven and often marked by striking 
spatial, social and economic inequalities. And the pandemic has also greatly altered the situation, not least with global poverty trends. So it's estimated that global restrictions have pushed approximately 144 million people into poverty, and many of these will be urban citizens. So paying careful attention to these issues is essential, and it's heartening to see sessions in the Conference on Matters of Culture, Language, Interdisciplinarity, Inclusivity, as well as multi-scalar governance being considered. Cities are increasingly the key implementer of international, national and local policy. They're where policy and theory intersect directly with people's lives. And this panel will explore the challenges encountered and the practical solutions deployed in cities who are really are at the pointy end of achieving the sustainable development goals. As an environmental social scientist myself with a long-standing interest in urban context, I'm delighted to chair the panel. I'm very interested to hear from all our panelists who've been introduced to you briefly today. So you're all very welcome. And I'd like to begin by posing questions to the panel, but I'm also keen to take questions from the audience. So please do post your questions on the conference platform and I'll endeavor to get to them later in the session. Being in the plenary session earlier, it was flagged that no top-down policy can be successful, be it science-informed or not, and that we need to co-production in developments for resilience and sustainability, with scientists coming together with policymakers, social organisations and citizenship at large. So building on this, I'd like to ask first John and Alice whether they have any examples of how cities are leading the way in engaging citizens in meaningful changes for a resilient future. And John, maybe as city manager with vast experience of partnerships from Port Townsend to Auckland, perhaps you would like to go first here. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you to Ingsa and to the organizers, participants, and my esteemed panelists here. It's really an honor to be with you. I'm in a very different location than I was not too long ago at a very different scale. And so, yes, Port Townsend is a small city almost in the middle of nowhere, really, on the tip of the Olympic Peninsula, on the tip of the Quimper Peninsula, on the edge of the world in Washington State. And it's a small town of about 10,000 people, and it's a far cry from the staff of 10,000 at Auckland Council, where I previously worked. But I think some of the tenets are quite similar. So I wouldn't be here if, if I didn't think that cities couldn't lead the way. In essence, I come you know, as a public servant dedicated to that concept. Um, and that's really integral to a better future for everybody. I guess I take the perspective that cities are networks. Cities are communities and concentrations of collective action. We're arbiters for the common good, especially in the face of some of the challenges that you spoke about earlier, and as well as things like, you know, the structural issues around neoliberalism and individualism and authoritarianism. And so there has to be hope for cities. And I guess I'll just um, maybe a few quick important things to consider and then a couple examples we could pick up later. We don't need to have all the answers. We don't continue to do things just because they've been done this way before. Uh, we can take some calculated risks because I think risk adversity uh, really hinders and kills innovation. Um, and then we really need to link up our efforts, you know, cross-sector, cross-jurisdiction, and really scale up to meet those challenges. So the, the three quick examples I'll use, one from my time at the city of Seattle, and it was not my initiative, it was the mayor of the Seattle's initiative around the U.S. Mayor's Climate Protection Agreement, which really was a galvanizing force behind cities to sign on to the Kyoto Protocol. The other example was the development of the Auckland Climate Action Plan and our inclusion also in the C40 Cities Network. And then finally, in my, my perch here, Port Town Townsend and Jefferson County you know, recently won a, uh, the ICMA award for innovation in local government for our intergovernmental uh, collaborative group, which is a, a small group network of agencies that are working together on resilience and coming back from COVID. 
That's great. Thanks, John. And, and Alice, do you have anything else to add on this question of how cities can lead the way for meaningful changes from your perspective as lead of the city's infrastructures and urban services platform with the, the World Economic Forum? The first thing I'd like to say is that if we're going to address the resilience issue, action has got to happen in cities. The majority of the world's population is there, but we also, for example, know that the majority of, the, of emissions are there, or if people are migrating, they're largely migrating to cities. So the sources of multiple risks and indeed multiple opportunities is very much in cities. In terms of cities working with multi-stakeholders generally, I'll just touch upon that first of all. So we do know whether it's in resilience, whether it's in climate, whether it's in innovation, that if a city is actually to develop a comprehensive strategy, that they really need to think about working with multiple stakeholders. And an important uh, stakeholder in that, of course, is academia, civil society, local citizens themselves, wider business, and it's really important to work with an international community. And we've seen many cities transform because of that. Pittsburgh is often an example that's highlighted by many, you know, which managed to turn itself around from a city that was largely failing in the steel sector to a city that's focused on eds and meds. And it did that very much working with the academic institutions that were within that city. But if we come to the issue of resilience, First of all, in relation to city resilience, we have to recognize the amazing work that was done by the Rockefeller Foundation in setting up the 100 Resilience Cities Initiative a number of years ago, which is now evolved to the Global Resilience Cities Network. So there they actually funded, you know, 100 cities to put in place a chief resilience officer to work both with the Rockefeller Foundation and indeed with professional services companies to help them to provide the resources, first of all, to the city, but also to help them develop a strategy for addressing resilience within their city. So those cities, first of all, produced a strategy for the city, but they also shared knowledge with the, the other 100 cities. And that's still happening today. And for every issue they're trying to address, I guess, it breaks down into there's learning and there's knowing cities who mentor each other in this journey to address resilience. Within that group of 100 cities, there's some cities that stand out. They're working with multiple networks, but they're also doing you know, very particular activities on the ground. So for example, Los Angeles, um, the mayor is the president of the C40 group, which is focused on climate, but also heavily involved in the Resilient Cities Network but also works extensively with the Hilton Foundation, for example. And one of the things that they have been doing is really leveraging their local academic institutions to help them think through how do they localize the SDGs. And resilience has been a major part of that. I also have to highlight the city of Paris. So the city of Paris, again, intimately involved in the Global Resilient Cities Network, also C40, but actually the City Science Initiative of the European Commission as well. And there they're leveraging science to think about how they address issues around air quality, for example, and how they become a more resilient city. So I think there's multiple examples of different cities that are taking a different stance, but I think that networks like C40, the City Science Initiative, and the Global Resilience Cities Network are critical to take some of that localized knowledge on the ground in cities and help them share it with other cities so other cities learn fast. Context may be different, but problems are often similar, so cities can learn a lot from each other. That's really interesting and, and certainly important that these networks have now had quite a long life 
So they've been embedded for, for a number of years at this stage. And it's clear that it's not just citizens and policymakers that need to come together to ensure just transition to sustainability and resilience. So that's a good point to bring in Edgar and Marie-Christine to reflect specifically perhaps on the role of science advice in these activities. And Marie-Christine, if you could come in first in your capacity as director of the City ID Living Lab, what do you see as the key role of science advice in helping to ensure meaningful changes? Thank you, Anna. You know, cities that are engaging this link between citizens and the city itself and science is really a strong balancing act between engagement, using scientific facts and models, but also in being able to create public value. And by that, I mean that the sharing of objectives by all of the stakeholders, and we've heard it in the presentations right before this, where we're talking about networks, we're talking about multiple stakeholders, multi-level elements. So I think that building together a network where we agree on what we're going to be doing to create more public value in the sense of delivering a system that has shared objectives with all of these stakeholders around the table is really important. You know, the word network often comes up. I think also that we need to think how uh, cities themselves can encompass this science advice and citizen thinking in governance capacity. They have very uh, strong siloed cultures and structures, and they need to look into how that's going to change. So this equilibrium between a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach needs to be more in, into a, a balancing act. That's really important point that you raise about governance capacity. And I wonder at that point, it's probably useful to bring Edgar in now as director of the African Centre for Cities. How do you see the role of science advice in helping to ensure meaningful changes that we need to make? Thanks, Anna. My um, reference points are I'm based in Cape Town and I'm from here and we do quite a bit of work in our own backyard. And for today's reflections, I'll refer mainly to some South African examples. But a lot of the work over the last 12, 13 years has really been to build networks on the African continent to help universities who've got urban programs to learn what it means to change your practice so that you can indeed engage in these co-producing processes with public authorities and so forth. But the context are, does really matter because, of course, universities are dramatically underfunded and under-resourced. And the same often applies to city-level governments that have got a very slim tax base and is often deliberately and explicitly under, if you will, powered um, because of constitutional and legislative dispensations that give very little functional power and resources to city governments. So that's an important part of thinking through what works and what doesn't. But that said, it's still very clear that there's a whole number of very specific interventions that scientific communities can make to support urban processes, especially in a context where you've got the fastest rates of urbanization of any world region taking place on the continent. But it is in a context where there's very, very limited infrastructural access, particularly network infrastructures. So one of the interesting and urgent tasks is really to help cities plot pathways, 
not just for infrastructure investment, but of course for sustainable infrastructure investment. And then to contextualize what sustainability means or resilience in that context, because it's not simply about carbon performance or materials efficiency. It has to also speak to questions of labor inclusivity, labor intensivity. How does one restitch broken fabrics? How do you deal with social inequalities? And so that by definition means that you've got to extend well beyond an engineering or a technicist definition of these infrastructural practices. Furthermore, You've got to combine new technologies and clean technologies with low-tech solutions that respond to very different climatic and community conditions. And all of this implies a set of research questions and processes and an accumulation of knowledge and an intermediation of these different kinds of knowledges that puts a set of demands of, on universities that they're not really prepared for or know that the sort of institutional environments allow them to do. So, you know, I can go through the list of all the innovations we need, whether it is nature-based solutions for placemaking, whether it is uh, how you support social enterprises in particularly poor communities so that they can be knitted into public investment programs or private sector investment programs, how you rethink the curriculum of formal education, public educational programs, because the key difference is, is that you need the active participation of citizens in every form of investment or design response and so on. So it is easy to identify what the role of science could be in these contexts, but there's still a number of questions about how does one effect the necessary transitions, both within universities and within the public sector so that they can optimize the potential of working differently and I guess undertaking co-production in, in different forms. So I, I guess part of my plea in this conversation is yes, it is our key to, is a critical solution, but since we have a number of people from the scientific establishments in this conference, it is important to underscore that we need to rethink the funding model for this kind of scientific endeavor. And we need to rethink also the procurement models within the public sector, because often that undermines the possibility of working in this way. And what we see tragically in a number of African cities is that they then tend to fall back on the management consultancy firms to come and bring in the scientific or the technical knowledge. And of course, as you can imagine, that with disastrous effect. So there's a number of systemic problems we've got to address, but the, what science can do, and later on, I'm very happy to give a more sort of positive examples of achievements, but you know, the potential is, is definitely unquestionable, but we do need to remain realist about just institutional retooling that is required and the resourcing if we're gonna really optimize all that potential. Thanks, Edgar. You really identified there you know, some of the key challenges in relation to science advice for improving cities' resilience in your context. So, Marie-Christine, you're based in Canada, a very different context. Uh, do you see similar or different challenges to those that Edgar's just raised? I think that coming from a very pragmatic approach as a, a director of a, a living lab, we, we deal with issues that are very much from the ground up that are identified by the different uh, stakeholders that we work with. But we also work with international cities. And what we're finding is that there are some differences in context, uh, maybe on how governance is arranged and what are the links, for example, between the city and the state or the upper level. But if you take it on a, a more mezzo level, I think that there's a lot of knowledge transfer capacity that we can establish between the different cities and the mechanisms and governance capacity. You know, I think moving towards more uh, 
pragmatic approach of engaging science teams in cities, one of the important things that we're noticing is that these teams have to be built together, hopefully, in working from the policy formulation up until the implementation issues. I think it's really important to consider that this whole spectrum has to be understood, not only from the science teams, but also from the cities. So an alignment between the policy objectives and the capacity to weave together the science to support the different policy instruments is something I think that whether you're in Montreal or in Stockholm or in Cape Town is something that can be looked at together. And if it's possible for on one side, the science teams to consider and understand what the policy cycle is, but also for the cities to engage science in all of the different policy cycles seems important. You know, we need a better understanding of each other's ways and each other's roles and that we each have limits to our responsibility. So we know that the cities have the responsibility to create the policy and it's not the researcher's responsibility, but we also know that the researchers have a responsibility to use data properly and, and model properly the, the way that they're doing things. So, And maybe the last thing on this is to say that being able to work with uncertainty becomes something very important to build in these science to urban policy approaches. As we build science and the methodology also, I should say, some tolerance has to be accepted in how we deal with science advice. Not all data is known. I mean, we have data from past events, but how can we use and be knowledgeable of forward foresight data is really important. Being able also to test ideas, so be a team between science, uh, the science team and the city, and to learn from them. So we need to build in a lot of flexibility of the working together between the city and the researchers. Finally, I think we need to also consider the link between the public administration and the politicians and that this difference between the two and how we're creating the different projects and how they will be influenced either by the public administration or the politicians in how the city works is really, really important to consider. They're really interesting points and I particularly appreciate your identification of the need to have the courage to experiment. And I think unfortunately in some jurisdictions it's increasingly difficult for local authorities to take those kinds of risks when they're under pressure to deliver on value for money and confirmed or, or secured outcomes. But John, you know, from a city manager's perspective, where do you see the key challenges for science advice for improving cities' resilience? I mean, you, you mentioned in your initial response there around the different contexts you worked in, Seattle, Auckland and Airport Townsend. So have you seen common challenges across your different sites of experience? And what do you see the key challenges being? Yeah, thank you. I'd like to pick up a final piece that Marie-Christine just shared about the link between public administration and politicians that I felt my head jerking up and down instinctively because that's effectively my role as a chief executive here is to work with those seven members of our city council and the mayor to um, to steward change in policymaking. Maybe pick up there because that's that was the same thing in Auckland with a slightly different arrangement uh, politically and the same thing in Seattle. And I think um, if I could just harness that point, that link is 
critical. And I think it goes back to some of what I was trying to share earlier, where if it is untethered and does not involve the public in a meaningful way, and there isn't a kind of engagement that gives the signals to local elected officials that, yes, this is possible, it's okay to take some risks and innovate and try something new, then frankly, we're stuck in a cycle of business as usual forever. And that's just not going to get us to where we need to get to. Well, change will happen to us and we'll be on the back foot eternally. So I think that connection, I mean, I really appreciate the point that Marie-Christine made about that link, because I would say that link is also intimately tied to where politicians are getting their signals. And that really is from civic engagement and those who elect them. And so I guess my call for action is to make sure people are engaged in the detail, in the science, in the things that affect their lives. At a local city level, and the city is an ecosystem. I have an environmental studies and biology background to some degree. And so seeing the city in that way that includes that civic engagement piece is really critical because I think that gives the permission or the it mitigates the fear that those who are going to be making decisions would have if they don't feel like there's some backing. And I could give a few very tiny examples. I mean, everything from changing the configuration of a local park to doing local street improvements that are new. I mean, those things seem minuscule, but really if there wasn't an engagement with the community, no one be, really would be willing to take the risk. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. And, and I wonder, Alice, then, from your perspective, uh, you mentioned a lot about networks. Have you seen the common challenges being faced around science advice for cities in your work at all or, or drawing on some of the other comments that we've had from the panellists here? I think that there are challenges, definitely, and I think a lot of them have been picked up on. There absolutely is a challenge in terms of governance, right? If we think about the city authority, you have civil servants who are largely answerable to politicians who are elected by the public. And on the other hand, then you have academic institutions where there's a greater degree of freedom. So there's a complete difference in terms of governance there. But I also want to just touch upon the financing issue. And I think Edgar touched upon that a little bit earlier. Cities are extremely constrained financially right now. And, you know, they've never been in the level of debt that they are in right now. And a city like New York is the worst best case example of that in that they have seen their city revenues drop, whether it's from parking charges or public transit. They have seen their return on investments drop. And they've seen their expenses go through the roof in terms of health and waste and sanitation and so on. And, you know, they've ended up with a nine billion deficit. But New York is by no means unique. That is the picture with regard to cities. So right now, their ability to procure is constrained and will be constrained. So I think that there's a financial issue there. There's also a public procurement issue in that generally the city does not engage academia, business, civil society in thinking about how they design that tender. And often they are not allowing for the latest research and innovation when they put out that tender. So that's an issue that often what they procure is not the latest thinking as well. I think there's also a learning and communication deficit when it comes to academia and cities working together. Policy that cities create has to be in very much layperson's context so that it, you know, the average citizen can understand it, whereas academic papers are presented in a very different way. There can be a communication deficit there. And I think another thing is 
you know, if you're creating policy for a city, creating a city development plan, for example, there's multiple areas that you've got to look at. And resilience is part of it. So in terms of the scientific community, if you're turning up in the city science discipline generally and seeking to bring those elements together, if, you know, there's programs in urban science and agency around urban science, then you're able to communicate in a broader context that a city needs to do if they're creating policy. They have to try and break down their silos, although they operate in silos. To create policy, they have to try and break down those silos to create a coherent policy that works for the entirety of the city. So there's certainly some of the challenges that I see when academia is trying to work with the city. But I would say academia is not unique in having challenges working with the city. The business community have the same issue, but they also have an added issue of trust, whereas the city would tend to have greater trust in academia, for example. So there is certainly difficulties that stakeholders encounter when they try to work together, but that is not to say that there is significant benefit in them working together. Thanks, Alice. Maybe I can stay with you then because I'm a bit of a despairing optimist myself and I'm keen not only to discuss the challenges, but also the opportunities. And I wondered, particularly in relation to the point you make about financial systems and investment in matters that relate to resilience, it's often difficult to work within the current parameters of what is recognised as a flawed system to come up with realistic responses. But in your work, have you come across any inspiring examples where these kinds of challenges have been addressed by cities? So financing is difficult, but the reality is that there's lots of money available. It's generally a capacity issue of the city to present a project in a way that it's deemed bankable. And that is often that they don't structure a project that seek an investment, whether that's a green resilience project or whether that's a public transit project in such a way that investors wish to invest in it. And that is whether they're seeking investment from the private sector or they're seeking investment from, you know, a multilateral development bank. That is the consistent issue that they face. So actually, the academic community can be immensely valuable to them in helping them to have the capacity to be able to structure an investable project in such a way that will attract investment. I think in the resilience space, most of the light that we're seeing in relation to investment in city resilience projects most recently, it's starting to come from the insurance sector. So the insurance sector working together with cities or national government or state level government. So they have the most to lose. So they have the most to gain in working with cities very early on and investing in vital resilience infrastructure that they, they need in, in the city. So in terms of thinking about addressing resilience within a city, it is of course critical that a city works with all stakeholders and when they think about the financing system that they need to work with, it is critical that they bring the major insurers for that city to the table because they have the most to lose if there's a major disaster, whether it be health, uh, security, climate related, etc. That's really important, I think. And John, you mentioned optimism in your think piece as well. How optimistic are you that the challenges raised today by the panellists can be overcome? And do you have any examples that illustrate that? 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, wouldn't it be strange if I was here if I didn't have optimism? Um, I think my comments would end right about now. But I think, you know, just a couple quick examples, because, you know, I think um, Alice really piqued my interest there, thinking about um, financing in the insurance industry. And it got me thinking about some work that we commissioned when I was uh, formerly the chief sustainability officer in Auckland, uh, New Zealand. We commissioned our research team, which is a dedicated group of smart and savvy scientists who are in-house. Um, and, you know, in a way that is a way to possibly mitigate that connection or disconnection between academia um, and public policy if you actually have in-house research teams. I wish I had one in my team here, but it's a vastly smaller city. Just picking up on the climate change risk assessment um, and associated research that was done a few years ago in Auckland, um, and crediting the authors of some of that work, Mario Fernandez, Nancy Globlowski, really innovative new thinking that was really supported by the, I mean, we worked in partnership with the insurance uh, industry because that new data and information was quite valuable to everybody. That was also the backbone, really the, the foundation for building a climate action plan for Auckland, for a just transition, for sustainability resilience. And, um, you know, that research was just fundamental. You know, there's 3,200 kilometers of coastline, as some of you know, in Auckland, and um, not all of it's obviously under threat, but even the news today, some significant flooding in Auckland has occurred and undoubtedly connected to um, the harsh realities of climate change. That's an example that I'd use where in-house commissioned research done by the team that can kind of understand, I think what was said earlier about the, the link between the, um, the science teams and the public policy teams, that was really helpful to steward an acceptance of that by the local politicians and actually baking it into public policy. Thanks, John. And Edgar, from your perspective, obviously under very constrained conditions in many contexts, are there any examples that you would like to flag where there have been positive responses to the challenges that have been raised? Yeah, and no, I can pick up very directly on John's example there. And I think that that is the key is to have, you know, is not to kind of think of scientific capacity as just in the university. It's much more distributed in society. But we had very sort of low cost models that we experimented with over the last decade, whereby by leveraging international donor funding, we were able to embed some of our researchers from the university and they get a parking bay and a staff card at the local municipality. And, you know, they have the space to do the thinking work that the permanent staff never have the time for because, you know, they're in meetings 24 seven as is the nature of a metropolitan government. And, you know, so for example, through that process, because they're part of staff, you know, they're embedded, they build a policy community within the administration, they get access to the data, they can build epistemic communities. And in a very short period of time, in about four and a half years, we were able to shepherd through an energy transition strategy for the city of Cape Town, a green economy strategy, a coastal management strategy, and the list goes on. And the point about that is that these were then things that were taken through the formal political process. Our researcher would then continuously have a week back home in the university where they kind of detox or they recover or whatever. But we also flipped it around and public officers could come and take a sabbatical for a month or two, come to our center, they get attached to a scholar, practice stories get written up. And just that moment of being extricated for a short period of time and feeling you're contributing to global conversations and debates and discussions, you engage with students, you help foster research topics and so on, is so energizing for these senior, extremely smart, but 
overworked and overstretched officials that it just sets up this really virtuous and dynamic circle. So I think there's lots to be learned from those kinds of things, which are all relatively low cost, but simply having these working arrangements with a lot of flexibility at the edges, I think is important. I just wanted to make one sort of uh, further point because uh, I can't help but respond to Ella's <laughs> remark about more flexibility in the university. Uh, so I sort of grew up in the think tank community and ended up in the public sector in an advisory role and then came to the university, right? And I was absolutely struck by, you know, the cultural differences, but also the ridiculous underestimation of the capacity within the public sector for scholarship, for scientific work, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, for me, that was really important. But what I've valued over the last while, and just to come back to the Rockefeller example you mentioned earlier, is, you know, we experienced that whole Rockefeller sort of rollout to 100 cities as having quite adverse effects as well, because it imposed a set of analytical frameworks around resilience that was completely over the top in terms of the data management and processing and collection capabilities within a lot of, you know, the cities we were working with. And it was quite important to kind of connect that into a set of what the conventional classic function of the university, where people kind of do a critique of resilience as a concept, right? So those folk are not necessarily part of the co-production, but you need that critical voice as well, because we all continuously slip into mental models and paradigms that require critique, right? So just, I guess, you know, sort of in the final closing minutes to kind of make an appeal for yes, we need this new knowledge architectures to be built and co-production and so forth, but we should never underestimate the need for the sort of rogue critique, right? That kind of thinks this kind of conversation we're having now is probably the biggest threat to cities because we're normalizing, you know, new forms of capital reproduction or whatever the critique might be, you can imagine. So the, the point that I'm just making is that there's so much uncertainty there's so much we don't understand. There's so much we need to unlearn in trying to experiment our way to what sustainability means in a contextualized, grounded way. That, you know, that sort of remaining open to critique and scrutiny and transparency is very much has to be part of, I think, the models of innovation that we build. So just sort of in the spirit of the conversation, I thought I'll add that one in. Thanks. That's great, Ego. I think that is really important and being maybe taking uncertainty as something to be scared of but something to be open about and, and having yeah. discussions a, a, around that as a means for defining pathways. I know Mike Hume had a very interesting article posted really he's a professor of human geography uh, but also a climate change scientist in Cambridge University and he has very interesting call for action that seeks to do away with the separation between fact, value and imagination and to bring all those together in the discussions of pandemics and, and climate change and the like. But finally, I'd like to bring in Marie-Christine on this in terms of positive city science interactions leading to improvements in resilience. And I wondered whether the living lab model that you're working with has provided some of these positive relations. So Marie-Christine, perhaps you could just bring in some positive suggestions from your work. Again, as I was saying before, we come in with a very pragmatic view and, and work with the city or the cities to identify what the issue is. And so, you know, one really quick example during the pandemic, we worked with a city here, Quebec City, 
to help them. They, they called upon us and they said, we have a problem. We're having difficulty doing foresight. We need some kind of organization. So that was their problem. And we took it seriously and we work with them, not in terms of science per se advice, but actually in terms of methodological help. So we work with them to develop an integrated urban scientific watch where they could have this foresight, access to what was happening and use this to support their decision-making. So I think that this was extremely helpful to them and built in. And we were, as a team, asked to be flexible enough to work around the different uh, time issues and availability issues and, and responses. And hopefully, I think it, it did work. Um, they were very happy about this and it is now encompassed into their uh, decision-making process. So I think it is possible to, even during an event, to you know work with them and hopefully support what they need to be developed. That's great. Thanks so much. I would like to go back to all the, the panelists just to wrap up. And my question to you, if you might just briefly identify one key action that you would like to see in support of science advice to cities for improving sustainability and resistance by 2030. If I could go to John first for your one point on that, that would be great. Yes, um, well, everyone loves a good silver bullet here. And, and unfortunately, I don't think there are any. I would say though that um, just to kind of pick up a theme here, I mean, how fantastic to have such synergy between the very diverse work that we all do here as a panel. And I would say adding to that as a point I made earlier, involve to evolve. You know, there's lots of local hidden talent, local application opportunities in a small city or large city. And if we're gonna make a just transition to a more sustainable and resilient future, that kind of local involvement is what we need to get over nimbyism, to anticipate change and take some risks. That's brilliant, thanks, John. Alice, how about you from your perspective, what do you think the key action would be that you would like to see prioritized? I think that the communication between academia and city policymakers is a critical area to address. Remember that city policymakers are trying to communicate with the general public Communication must be concise, it must be understood by citizens. And I think that academia needs to think about how it can better translate what it's saying to a city so that it's better understood by citizens. Thanks, Alice, that's great. And, and Ed, go over to you. Thanks, I mean, really building on John and Alice's points. For me, I, I have to think very concretely and because you know we've got to make choices about what to invest in. It seems very clear to me that sort of thinking about an explicit city innovation ecosystem is the way to go. That can take on many forms in different places. They're not universities. They're something that intermediates between various knowledge institutions, the public sector and the private sector. But I think, you know, that speaks to the importance of focusing very problem-driven research, but also the communication piece. And for me, you know, this is, all comes back fundamentally, you know, because we've got to build public capacity for social imagination you know so we need things that can animate that animation and that's going to be exciting experiments innovations and so on and it can be everything from representing data innovatively through science fairs at high school whatever you know so but the point is if you have an ecosystem sort of uh, for innovation that can hold all of that with a commitment and a mission to build publics around the future city i think we're a long way to there Thanks, Edgar. And finally, over to Mary-Christine, just for the final word here. 
I think we need a really closer integration of the researchers with the city teams to help develop policy instruments and governance capacity to help achieve and measure resilience and sustainability objectives. There's so much food for thought there and thank you to everyone for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. The International Network for Government Science Advice is the leading global network for those interested in the dynamics of research-informed public policy making. For more content, news and opportunities from the Science Policy Interface, join the INGSA network for free at ingsa.org. That's I-N-G-S-A And join us again soon for more great minds and great conversations. Thank you.